This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Welcome to Pass the Mic. I'm your producer, Bo York. With me is your normal host, the co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, Mr. Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how are you doing tonight? Uh, Such a loaded question, given the circumstances. (laughs) Um, If I speak honestly, I can just say I've been better. That's what I've been saying all day. Well, honesty is what we're after, man. This is a, uh, just to kind of give some framework for where we are as we record this podcast live. Uh, It is November 9th. Uh, the election of 2016 has uh, has come and gone, and uh, we now sit with uh, President-elect Donald Trump. Um, mm. I'm, I'm still not used to that. Well, so we, from time to time, uh, pass the mic, we, we will um, experience moments where the community of listeners, of RAN readers, there's, there's almost an outcry for there to be kind of a... I don't know, a sense of community, a, a sense of emotion, just just a way to kind of uh, direct and process through thought and through speaking and, and really kind of uh, having someone help think through what's going on right now. This episode, the goal is to kind of be very raw. It's, it's not planned. It's not scripted. Uh, there are some scripted questions that I have in front of me, but but really, man, this is this is kind of a, an opportunity for just I think a lot of us to to kind of hear your thoughts as we all process our own emotions uh, with where we are. For many of us, uh, for those in the African American community and, and minorities, those of us who've been working towards racial reconciliation, uh, there's a deep sense of lament. I think that we're all experiencing right now. Can you can you talk to that and, and perhaps even frame that up to some extent? Absolutely, uh, lament has been really an important concept for me in the past couple of years uh, as we've looked at. Um, different events going on in the news that are related to race, um, particularly deaths of African Americans, oftentimes involved in law enforcement and whatnot. And so we get to these 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 points where the the tragedy is so great and so frequent that y- you're kind of at a loss. And before I had a framework for biblical lament, I really didn't know what to do with that. Um, so. Lament has come along for me at just the right time to help me process these things. There is biblical grounds for lament. I mean, uh, there's a book called Lamentations in the Bible, um, the book of Job. He he talks, he laments constantly throughout that book after tragedy after tragedy strikes him personally. And he cries out to God and he talks honestly about uh, how he feels. I just want to read a couple verses because I think they're so stark and, and raw and true. And so uh, this is from Job 16, uh, verses, uh, let's say, 19 to 22. And he says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as soon as a son of man does with his neighbor, for when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Mm. 
and it goes on and on and on. But what I what I really found helpful in thinking through this idea of lament was a book called Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Troubled Times by Dr. Soong Chan Ra. We actually had him on past the mic um, just the episode before this. So I invite listeners to go download that episode and hear from Soong Chan Ra. And in that book, he says this, Laments are prayers of petition arising out of need, but lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, not merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. So that's sort of a framework about lament. And I think it's important because right after the election, I saw all of these people who were not Trump fans or not Trump supporters basically giving calls to action. Like we need to go out and mobilize. We need to be activists. And and that's true. And I agree with that. I just disagree with the timing. I think we need time to sit with our emotions, to grieve, to process um, before we even think about it on an intellectual level, and certainly before we go out and try to do something. There's a there's a, there's a lot of emotions that are being processed right now. Anger, um, being being kind of chief amongst them. Anger, depression, uh, just a general sense of of being upset. Is it okay? Uh, for for we as Christians to be angered by this, to be as upset as many are pouring out, is is it okay to be upset? Look, we live in a fallen world. We live in a, a world that's that's full of sin and brokenness, and it would be profoundly inhuman not to experience frustration, anger, sadness at what we perceive to be injustices, and so. Uh, the full gamut of emotions is on display in Scripture, and you know there are limits to that. The Bible says, "Be angry and, and do not sin," uh, but at the same time, it doesn't say, "Don't be angry." Um, it doesn't say, "Don't be sad." These these are part of the ways, part of what makes us human is to have a heart <laughs> about these things, and so I think it is appropriate. Um, you know, people are going to experience different emotions and for different reasons, uh, but I. Th- as believers, we, we need to, I think, give each other space to be fully orbed human beings, which would include not just the spiritual, not just the intellectual, but also the emotional dimensions of who we are. And we need to not be afraid of that, especially because, you know, we're part of the Reformed African American Network. We put such a high emphasis on theology and doctrine and these kind of cognitive ways of understanding religion, we really need to give each other space, a positive space for emotion. Now, how to process that and what to do, um, I mean, I can say what I did. Like, I I had uh, two classes today. I'm a graduate student in history at, at the University of Mississippi, and uh, I told my professors honestly, like, I, I'm, I'm literally not feeling well, and I just need some time today because I would have been worthless in class. And so I spent the day, um, half the day off of social media, which was a long time, uh, given, given the circumstances. Um, I rested, I ate, I caught a nap because I was up till three in the morning watching the results. And, and that's what it looked like for me. Part of that 
was lamenting and in prayer and in the Bible. A big part of that was talking to my wife. She was such an anchor for me and a godsend. We spent probably an hour together uh, processing this, and she went to bed way before I did. But she, you know, she found out the election results first thing in the morning, and before we even said a word to each other, we just hugged. And um, you know, sometimes words fail you, and this was one of those times. So yeah. You know, when, when, uh, the election was going on, we were uh, messaging each other back and forth and, and before, you know, well before it was called and the numbers were as high as they were for Trump. Uh, you know, I, I said something to the effect of, you know, to, to some extent, it doesn't even matter if she wins or loses at this point. Cause the damage is done. Yeah. Uh, there's so yeah. much overwhelming support for him that, you know, there, there is this outcry, but that being the case, I mean, obviously one does not become the president without having a large amount of followers behind them. Uh, it, it, it's fair to say that there may be some listening that don't understand why people are upset, uh, about this election result at all. Well, so, I mean, there's a couple levels, right? There's there, one, uh, in any election, you support a particular candidate, um, a particular party, and you're going to experience emotions when that, that candidate and that party doesn't win. So on a very, you know, basic level, um, there are people who are extremely happy because their candidate won. And there are a lot of people who are extremely disappointed because their candidate lost. And that's nothing unique to this particular election. That's just, you know, there's going to be one winner and, and lots of different losers in terms of the election. But on a deeper level, this isn't like any election. And this is a massive point that I'm sure we'll flesh out uh, throughout the rest of the conversation. Uh, there's th- This election, in a sense, was a referendum on American ideals. Uh, it felt very much like our stated um, vision for what it means to be an American and what this nation represents were on trial in this election. And uh, I'm not saying that either candidate perfectly represented those values, but one candidate in particular, the one who ended up winning for a lot of us, uh, was the antithesis of the highest ideals, particularly diversity and equality, um, equal opportunity, those kinds of things. So when Trump wins, there's this sense that the nation isn't what we thought it was. Uh, it's not what we hoped it was, at the very least. And there is, I think, an understandable sort of um, lament and heaviness and grief that goes along with that. Dive in a little bit more. I mean, you know, with with the campaign in particular, I think a lot of a lot of us who've been working towards racial reconciliation, we, we've taken it on the chin several times throughout the last couple of years. But something about this really felt like a gut punch that kind of pushed back everything that we've been doing by several steps. I mean, is that a fair feeling? Is or or is that impacting the emotion that uh, many of us have right now? Yeah, I, I feel like it's this. In light of this election, I feel like this is it's this Sisyphean effort. We're, we're rolling this monumental boulder up a hill only to have it constantly roll back down on top of us um, and have to start from the bottom all over again. And it was extremely um, – there's like getting the rug pulled out from under you because here I was. You know, I spent most of my ministry uh, doing – work of the work of racial reconciliation, the work of racial justice. And 
you know, I'm going to churches and speaking. Uh, I'm, I'm making friends and acquaintances online and in person. I'm, I'm writing and getting feedback from people. And there's all this energy around racial reconciliation. And people seem to be on board. And then you find out over 80% of people who identify as evangelical, white evangelical, voted for Donald Trump. And so uh, it made me feel as if all of the words that I spent, whether whether in a presentation or in writing or whatever, those were wasted because uh, so many of my brothers and sisters in the faith still don't understand where I'm coming from as a racial minority, particularly an African-American in this country. And it, and, and I, I, it feels like um, the work of developing racial unity among believers took a monumental step backwards, uh, or it didn't move at all, and I just thought it was in a different place than it really was. But either way, it was, it was devastating to someone who really takes this idea of racial reconciliation as an issue that's central to the gospel. The the statistics that you mentioned in terms of evangelicals who who supported Trump is uh, is in, in particularly painful, and for many that find themselves in in churches where they might attend and and um, you know well let me ask it this way you know for many of us we Christians we we go to our church uh, for times of emotional support you know if if we're mm. dealing with things in in our lives and our marriages if we've lost a parent or a loved one uh, if we're going through through strife or through uh, just really emotionally hard times. The the church is a safe haven to turn to, and, and in many instances, our pastors are, are kind of our counselors in that way. With something like this, where there's racial pain that is tied to the, this election, how would I go to my pastor, and especially how would an African American in a predominantly white church go to their pastor and even begin to have the discussion of the pain that they're feeling? Uh, whether with kind of understanding that based on those statistics, that pastor may have been a Trump supporter. Mm. Uh, you told me to be honest, right, Bo? This is honest. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to say where I am, and so I'm really can only definitively speak for me. But I don't think it's going too far out on a limb to say that there are many other black Christians who may feel the same way. Mm. And this is probably going to surprise a lot of white people and maybe even feel offensive to them. But but here it is, uh, just the raw, honest truth. I really, this Sunday, don't feel safe worshiping with white people. Um, I go to a church that is predominantly white and reformed. I am part of a denomination that is overwhelmingly white and reformed. And I know dozens and dozens and dozens of people personally who are great people individually, good relationships with them, generous, all of those things. Uh, but right now I feel betrayed by the church. Um, not the church universal. I know that Christ is still the cornerstone. I know that in you know, an eschatological sense, uh, nothing will prevail against the church, and that this is this is my home. Um, we are Christ's bride, and and that's that hasn't changed, and certainly not because of a little thing like a presidential election. Mm. Uh, however, let's be real. 
we live in the real world. On Sunday, I have to go to a physical building with a local congregation filled with people who, just like me, are sinners. And I know for certain that in many of the congregations in which I've, I've been a member or worshipped in, uh, there are folks who were overtly, outright, boldly Trump supporters and are happy right now. And I cannot emotionally bring myself to be comfortable with that mm. uh, and going in on Sunday morning and, and, and singing songs and praying with this group of people who seem um, so out of touch with my experience of America. It's painful, right? Because we, we hear the stats, we hear the talking about evangelicals turning out. And, and for many of us, we think, well, that's, that's, that, that's like a false evangelicalism, right? That's, that's a misrepresentation of the gospel. Surely these are not the true Christians, but as you just kind of painted a picture of, I mean, in, in your very church, I mean, this is, this is happening and this is of course happening across the nation where, uh, many don't feel safe. So how, how, how do we process this reality of being, <laughs> being in community with people that we are not in community with? <laughs> um, I mean, let, let me just be historical for a second here. There is no black church without uh, racism and cultural obtuseness, mm -hmm. to be generous, uh, in the white church. And to go further, it's not the theology on paper that repels African Americans from uh, majority white churches and institutions. It's theology and practice that does it. And, I mean, I'm just being raw and honest here. I want to go to uh, my old black missionary Baptist church hmm. where I don't have to explain why I'm sad. I don't have to explain uh, why I had to take a, a, a day off from my, my normal activities. I don't have to fake a, a, a smile or, or um, you know, somehow uh, pretend like like – like what just happened in this election is okay with me. I want to go to a place. I want to go to the to the to the ark to the refuge, mm -hmm. which is what the black church has always been. Mm -hmm. And for for reasons like this, and and not to compare, you know, this election to some of the things that that African Americans have endured in the past, but it served a similar purpose in the sense of of drawing strength from it. But the reality for many of us is that's not an option. That's not an option because we're members at different churches. That's not an option because we may not be in an environment where where uh, we have those churches. Um, it, and it's not maybe it's just not an option for the long term. Maybe this week or next week, but but not for the long term. And so, what do you do with that? Um, I'm just, I am not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Where I am, where I am right now is mm. I'm upset and uh, I don't feel like putting on a filter. So you know, I feel I feel like if somebody wants wants to step to me with you know something about Trump that's you know positive or affirming or, or something like that, I'm not here for it. And they're going to get a piece of my mind, hopefully not rudely. Um, but I think. In, in in my view, one of my regrets in this whole election cycle is that I wasn't bolder, mm. that I wasn't mm -hmm. um, as forthright with my ideas. Uh, 
And, and I say that in the context of being bolder than I've ever been about mm. race and politics um, in my entire life. And I still don't think I was able to, to really speak my mind. And so I, I think we do as African-Americans a disservice to our white brothers and sisters by not being honest. And that doesn't mean being rude, um, but it also doesn't mean hiding emotions. Emotions are part of this whole thing. And it certainly doesn't mean hiding our opinions. Now, you may agree or disagree, but we should be able to have these conversations, not come down on the same side of things, and and lift our hands together and worship. Um, now, that's an ideal, but that's where I am. I'm just, I'm, I, I've got to speak honestly, because if I don't, <laughs> ain't a bunch of us in the congregation and, and they probably won't hear it from anyone else. So this morning I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, is African American business owner, uh, in kind of the local area. We had a, uh, and kind of an entrepreneurial meetup and, and we were just talking and he was like, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, uh, and I'm an evangelical. I'm not at the end of the day, it's not that I'm afraid or, or upset or, or even necessarily against conservative leadership, but the way they painted evangelicals coming out in support for Trump, that's that's not me. He's not what I'm represent. And he found himself very much in kind of this moment of, you know, what does it even mean to be a black evangelical today? Mm, mm. I don't use that term. <laughs> um, mm. I say I'm confessional. I say I'm Presbyterian. Uh, but evangelicalism has always been a loaded term. But in this past year and a half with this election cycle, it's become a byword. Uh, both it, it, it's, it's always been pretty negatively received by non-Christians, uh, outside of the church, but even within the church now, it's a very negative, uh, label. So I see lots and lots of white folks not wanting to be labeled evangelical for a while and now. black folks. For, <laughs> yeah. And black folks for, for, for a while now haven't, because anytime folks brought up evangelical and didn't say white before it, everything they said after that word really only applied to white people, <laughs> uh, particularly white men. It was it was not a descriptive term, and so yeah, I don't I don't use the term. And for for black people, look, we have theological convictions that would line up with the theological convictions of evangelicals. You know, centrality of the Bible, emphasis on a personal relationship with Jesus for salvation, those kinds of things. We line up with that. We don't have a problem with that. The issue is this is not really a religious label so much as a political and a cultural one. Mm. And it's those political and cultural um, stances that many African Americans um, are the antithesis of and take massive issue with, me included. So, yeah, I don't I don't identify as it, uh, as an evangelical, I, I, at least, you know, without crazy nuance with which is basically saying yeah theologically uh scripturally biblically i would line up with some of those same beliefs but on the political and the cultural and the social end no no not me well let's push it a little bit further because evangelical is political code language for christian i mean that's that's kind of the the further push of the question right what does it mean today to be a black christian in america well <laughs> i mean it certainly doesn't mean one thing right um, so I'll, I'll speak sort of from my branch of Christianity, which, um, is in particular reformed, but more broadly kind of just 
theologically traditional, uh, particularly on, you know, kind of uh, sexual ethics, right to life, those kinds of things would take a traditional stance on it. Um, but to, to, to be black and Christian, or black and at least theologically evangelical, means you're, you are in a hinterland, uh, religiously and socially. You, you're 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 in in this in between space where you don't quite belong. And then you know everybody feels to a certain extent like uh, the person on the outside of the circle. But I'm saying as as an entire people group, as an entire um, race who believes the gospel and is involved in uh, predominantly white evangelical circles, is tough. It's tough. It's tough uh, because um, just in terms of, of worship, the style's very different. You know, uh, they, they, they call, they call uh, my denomination the, the frozen chosen because they don't move, they don't speak, they don't do anything that would be associated with many traditional black churches. And so you're dealing with that. You're dealing with, you know, what illustrations and applications does the pastor use? Does it connect with you on a day-to-day cultural level? What songs are they singing? Uh, what's the composition of the congregation? So you've got all of that going on, but then you've got sort of more ideological differences as well. So on social issues, you can look at the past couple of years when, you know, incidents happened like 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 Trayvon Martin, like like Mike Brown, like like Eric Garner, like so many others. These human beings reduced to hashtags because of violence and the way that white evangelicals and black Christians have responded so differently Mm. Uh, because for black people, these incidents, I always think it could have been me. And if not me, somebody I know who looks like me It's not hypothetical It's real Uh, is real out there in the streets. <laughs> this is an existential reality. It, it, it is it is racism, it is hatred taken out on physical bodies in violent manner, and that, that could happen to me at a traffic stop or walking down the street. And so I'm going to react to that differently than somebody who's not in that position because the color of their skin in this culture doesn't mean the same thing. So, so we're in this in-between phase where, you know, African-Americans, particularly the ones who go to mainly white churches, if something like that happens, another hashtag or something like that, they're sitting there sort of sort of wondering, is my pastor going to talk about this Sunday? Mm-hmm. Are people are people going to address this? And if they do, are they going to dismiss my pain? Are they going to understand where I'm coming from? Are they going to weep with me? Are they going to judge me? Uh, are they going to disagree with me and argue with me? Uh, that's a terrible place to be, particularly in the church, but it's where we are. The outcome of this election, because of the campaign that came before it, because of the rhetoric that was used, uh, because of the um, the people groups that, that rallied behind Trump, um, you know, endorsement directly by the KKK, there, there's those of us that see the outcome of this, uh, this election as almost the embodiment of racial injustice. But those of us who feel that way, we're, we're a small contingent within our church. What do we do? Where, where, where do we go from here? What are our, our next steps in terms of fighting racial injustice from a b- biblical standpoint within our own churches and ideally beyond? What, what, what I hope we don't do is pretend like we're further than we are. Because if, if, if anything this election has shown us is that we as Christians who believe these certain things that many would associate with evangelicalism 
we are not nearly as far along in racial reconciliation as we thought. Doesn't mean there hasn't been progress. There's 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 growth in the t- in number number of intentionally multiracial churches. There's there's uh, interracial marriages happening. There's dialogue happening. There there are white Christians who are quote unquote woke. That's real um, and that's good. But this is. This has been extremely sobering for me personally to think about people, not abstract people, people I have real relationships with. I know I call, I text, I, I go to church with, uh, have lunch with, whatever. Real life people who I know, we are so far apart in our understanding of American culture and our experience of this nation um, that I'm like, we got to start from scratch. Mm. <laughs> we got to start all over almost. Uh, so, you know, um, so we got to be honest with ourselves. To me, here's this. The fundamental issue, a fundamental issue, we have got to understand racism more broadly. We have got to move beyond the idea that racism is purely interpersonal and relational. Which means the problem is, you know, I harbor personal hatred or animus towards somebody who looks different. Uh, So I say the N-word or I say you can't come in here, you can't sit next to me, whatever it is. Uh, And therefore the the solution to that kind of racism is to be nice to everybody and have your black friend uh, and go out to coffee with people. And in that way, because you're building relationships and you're not harboring hatred towards someone because of their skin color or culture or something, you're doing your part. Well, well, yes, we need that. But that relational aspect is necessary but not sufficient. Uh, what we need to do is really begin to dismantle the systems, the policies, the practices embedded in our churches, embedded in our institutions, embedded in our ministries that continue to separate and divide us. And I'll put it on the line. Uh, if you want to know where segregation begins, it's not in the church necessarily. It's where we choose to live and it's where we choose to send our mm-hmm. kids to school mm-hmm. or go to school ourselves. Uh, and that's going to take to to break down those lines of segregation, some real tough choices, because now you're talking about, well, I can go to a school that's really high performing, give my child the chance at academic success, or I can be, you know, a, 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 a pioneer and, and um, make sure my child goes to a place that that has some diversity. Uh, or you're talking about living in a neighborhood that that has nice a nice tax bracket and sidewalks and manicured lawns versus a place that has more diversity but may not have as much affluence. Uh, that gets real. Um, so if we want to have diversity on Sunday, we better produce, pursue it Monday through Saturday as well. And that's hard to do, but there's no other way around it, particularly for Christians in the majority, to really begin to understand what life is like for minorities and in particular African-Americans. Man, that's a podcast in and of itself. Yep. It seems like every single year, uh, or that is to say every single election cycle, um, the rhetoric gets more polarizing. Everything kind of amps up a notch. There's always this, uh, you know, general growth of fear uh, from election to election. Can you kind of compare or, or, or look a little bit at this election as opposed to the previous elections. And and I'm thinking very specifically about the fact that we are making this transition from 
Barack Obama to Donald Trump, two very polar opposites on almost every level. <laughs> you know, you, you warned us about getting too political on this podcast, <laughs> well, and so <laughs> I, 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 we won't compare the politics, right? There, there's always going to be policy differences between people, no matter how closely you align religiously. And so apart from the actual policies and policies, let's just talk about character. Yeah. Let's just talk about image. Let's just talk about role model potential. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama is looking pretty darn good right now. Um, I don't care if you voted for him or not. This is a family man. Uh, he's had no major personal scandals. Uh, he, 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 he elevates his wife. He elevates his daughters. You know, women were, were proud and empowered to see this black man, um, you know, affirming women nationally. Uh, he, he has composed himself in the face of vicious, vicious, racist, personal attacks, including <laughs> the birther movement, that he wasn't even born here, that he's not an American, that he's, that he's not, uh, 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 that he's Muslim, and, and all of these things. In the, in, in the midst of all that, <laughs> you know, and he's endured, um, you know, t- these national tragedies from school shootings to church shootings. So he's not been a perfect president by any means uh, in terms of, of policies or, or decisions or, or things like that. But in terms of somebody that I could point my, my, my black son to and say, listen, <laughs> go to an Ivy League school. You can do it. Uh, become a lawyer. Become a senator. Become president. Um, love your family like this man. I, 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 don't feel, <laughs> I don't feel any qualms about pointing to someone like Barack Obama. Can we say the same for Donald Trump? I can't. Absolutely not. Instead of telling, instead of pointing to the president as someone for my child to emulate, <laughs> I'm pointing to the president as 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 someone to to warn my child about. And I think that's a travesty. I think that's a failure on the part of uh, American citizenship. Well, you know, we we're kind of coming down to the line here, but uh, I know you had wanted to talk a little bit about uh, pious pragmatism. <laughs> All right, so 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 you wait till the end of the podcast to get me in in, in trouble. Um, listen, this this is the thing, and this is what's going to divide even uh, Christians who thought they were close on on some issues. This is like the third rail of, of this election. Uh, as an African American listening to Donald Trump, the way the Ku Klux Klan feels emboldened by him and will publicly support him. And he'll just kind of him and haw about their support, not, not reflexively repudiate it like anyone with, with a conscience, the way he um, talks about the African Americans or my African Americans, this, this kind of uh, papering over any sort of, uh, uh, distinctions or nuances, uh, like, 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 I mean, it's almost like we're little pets or something in his, his rallies. Um, the, the, the amount of Confederate, I, I, w- I went and observed at a Trump rally. I'm not speaking about this just from the, the media. I went and observed at a Trump rally and, and the amount of Confederate flags I saw, I literally felt unsafe. And somebody contacted me about that and, and ticked me off. Cause they're like, well, you shouldn't feel that way. I did. I'm an African-American. This country has a history. 
And, and if we don't know that history, it can be fatal for people like me. Hmm. Um, I don't feel comfortable in a Trump America because we've been down this road before as, as a nation and as African-Americans. And it doesn't end well when somebody, even if it's just rhetoric from the top, it'll turn into actions at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people, there's a, one of my good friends who's an African-American, staunch Democrat, devastated by this election. He was dropping his daughter off at school today. Good family man. Uh, you know, uh, married, uh, two kids, two beautiful daughters, uh, African-American, dropping his daughter off at daycare. Somebody drives by and pointedly to him starts shouting, Trump, 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 Trump. His daughter witnessed that. She's like, what is this? He's there. How does he feel in this America? How do I feel in this America? And for my white brothers and sisters not to even understand that, that is a huge blow to what we call racial reconciliation in the church. So all that to say, I could not risk a a Donald Trump presidency. And the reality is, statistically speaking, only two candidates were viable to be president the next four years. And I think Carl Ellis put it best, uh, oppression limits your good choices. Uh, Injustice limits your good choices. And so in an imperfect world where it's not just, we don't always get to choose the ideal candidate or take even an idealistic stance and risk (laughs) the physical safety of people, the mental safety of people, and the cries of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so I think we need to think deeply about this. This is politics. This is this is doing government in a real gritty, sinful world. What does that look like? Um, and it's not always going to be, you know, this sunny, bright land where I voted my conscience and there aren't serious and damaging repercussions. So we need to exercise, I think, uh, given the state of, of, of the world we're in, a sort of pious pragmatism uh, that will do the least harm even as we regroup and try to make sure that we have more palatable and desirable candidates in the future, right. put it that way. Well, I think um, one thing's for sure, man, we've, uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Man, we got more work to do than I ever thought. Okay. Anybody who's listening, don't start yet asking the question, what do we do now? What do we do next? Don't, or, or, or rather, understand that lament is a form of action and protest. Uh, I, I, I genuinely believe, and it's worked for me even just today. I could use the rest of the week off, but i got to get back to the real world tomorrow. But even just taking a day has, has refreshed me, um, has given me some perspective, calling friends, processing with people. That's the work right now. And to pastors and church leaders, I, you know, I would just say, don't wait for your, your, the minorities in your congregation to come to you. Don't keep them guessing till Sunday. Mm. Reach out mm. and let them know, hey, I, I, I just can't imagine what this moment is like for you right now. Would you, would you share so I can, you can help me understand or, or do you just want to weep together or, or whatever I can do for you? 
or even just to say, look, I don't know what I'm going to say in the sermon, um, but I'm thinking about you, and I want you to be at home in the church. Like, I want everyone to be at home in the church. But, um, you know, be proactive, I think. And then, you know, reaching out. I just, let's, can we practice love? Can we just love one another uh, in this time and grieve together? And we'll figure out what to do next. I promise you it'll become clear. <laughs> oh, amen to that. Well, hey, um, you know, Ran, uh, this this week over the next couple of days, we're uh, we're, we're trying to provide avenues for, for people to do just that, to, uh, to, to love one another, to be with one another, uh, to kind of think through these things together and just to have a, a safe place directly after this live podcast tonight. Um, we actually have a, a Google hangout, uh, specifically for members of the pass the mic Facebook group. Uh, if you're not a member, you can head over to Facebook, look up pass the mic and, and, uh, request to join. Uh, you, you might not get into this live hangout tonight. It is, you know, the, the goal is to really, uh, be kind of somewhat of a closed door conversation to, to be, allow people to, to express their, their frustrations and not have to explain the frustrations that they have. Um, and so we'll actually have one every single night this week, starting tonight. Jamar will be on tonight. Uh, Tyler will actually be on tomorrow along with Elodie, who's our, what's, what's her official title, uh, Jamar? Managing editor. Managing editor. all around kick butt person. That's right. Uh, and then I'll, <laughs> I'll be on on Friday night, hopefully with a, a special guest as well. So that's happening eight o'clock CST every single night this week. Um, we also uh, will have another live past the mic coming this Friday, a little bit more of a traditional format for that particular one. Um, that'll be at 11 a.m. for those of you who are able to tune in. Uh, that's again, 11 a.m. Uh, CST. When moments like this happen and so many of us are dealing with pain or frustration or confusion and need a gospel-centered framework to figure out that pain, that frustration, uh, that confusion, um, you know, we, we hear you. Uh, we hear the, the verbal, um, the calls, the texts, the tweets, the posts. Um, and that, that affirmation, uh, and your appreciation for this ministry, it, it goes, it, it, it goes beyond words, but there is a way to help this ministry beyond words. And that is specifically through financial support. Um, in times like now, we, uh, it, it's become apparent that, that ran, uh, past the mic, uh, there's, there's a need, there's a demand for this ministry and, and we need your help to really kind of strengthen it. Um, help us continue to build the ministry of RAN by making a donation. If you go to rannetwork.org slash donate, uh, you can make a donation. Actually, now we do have a, a page dedicated specifically to live content. Uh, if you go to uh, under audio that says live past the mic on the, on the, uh, website and you can click there, we've got the donation built in as well. So if you're tuning in from that website, you should be able to see that as well. Uh, but now is the time we need to make an investment in reconciliation and your dollars go towards expanding our reach, empowering our team and providing gospel centered content that addresses the core concerns of African-Americans biblically. We want to thank you all so much for taking your time tonight to join us for this live show. Uh, again, for those of you who are uh, interested and able and part of the group, uh, look to the uh, Pass the Mic Facebook group for the link for the live Google Hangout uh, if you'd like to join in there. But um, for me and for Jamar uh, and for all of us uh, at, uh, at RAN, we want to thank you all for tuning in, and we will see you next time on the next Pass the Mic. Pass the Mic.
You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.